thought capital. No cash changes hands. Energy justice, tax incentives, environmental concerns. Resource taxation. Highly competitive. Australia is missing out. The social disorganization theory. We cannot think of China as just one big market. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. We have over a trillion observations, which sets us apart from a lot of data sets that's in particular used in social sciences and economics. This podcast looks at the very big picture of big data. You cannot handle this amount of data on a normal desktop computer. No, not the usual cliches of what Facebook is doing with your personal information or the discount store knowing a woman is pregnant before she tells her family. We're going bigger than that with Professor Paul Rashke from the Department of Economics. Paul, you use large amounts of data to conduct your research. I better let you define big data first. Thank you, Michael, for having me. One definition of big data just a large number of observations that you store on very big computers. You don't use just standard statistical methods, but more modern statistical methods. We have over a trillion observations, which sets us apart from a lot of data sets that's in particular used in social sciences and economics. You cannot handle this amount of data on a normal desktop computer. You need just bigger computational capacity. So we use the Australian synchrotrons Uh, computing power for that. All right, to get my simple one bit at a time mind around this, when you're dealing with the trillions, you've been looking at internet flows in Russia, for example, leading up to the election. What exactly are you looking at? Are you out-Russianing the Russians? We are looking at two things. The first thing is we look at online offline activity. So in each of the Russian districts or oblasts, we selected a large number of representative IPs and IP addresses and look just whether these are online or offline over a certain period of time within a day. So we started observing the Russian internet space in early December and observed the space on a daily basis uh, at hourly intervals up to after the elections. So we have an an ongoing project, which is called the IP Observatory. And the goal there is to um, observe internet availability and internet quality during, broadly speaking, critical events. So critical events could be elections. They are important for, you know, democracy, where a functioning internet is very important because voters have to make informed decisions. That's one uh, critical event, another critical event on natural disasters. But coming back to the elections, we initially started off by monitoring the internet during the uh, Turkish constitutional referendum in 2017. Prior to that referendum, there was already anecdotal evidence that there could be disruptions uh, to the internet availability. So we decided to you know, start with that. And then we went on and looked at the elections following that, with, which were the presidential elections in Iran, and after that came the Russian elections. Um, we have already um, research done. My colleague Klaus Ackermann, who is a former PhD student of ours, has already analyzed Internet behavior and Internet activity during the previous Russian elections, and he found systematic evidence that there was tampering with the Internet 
especially in districts which are more supportive of the opposition. Tampering with the internet means you collect data from all districts in Russia and observe if the speed and availability changes over time within and between districts. There could be a lot of natural causes why the internet speed might go down, especially in a country like Russia where infrastructure of the internet is not as solid as in some other countries. But looking at systemic changes over time allows you to get a bigger picture of deviations. So far, you've looked at internet speeds during three elections, Turkey, Iran and Russia. What did you find? So far, we did not find any evidence of systematic tampering with the internet infrastructure. That's what we analyzed. We analyzed the latency, so that's the, the, you can say the speed, and the general availability of the internet. Now, in the case if people say, look, there's a lot of evidence that the incumbent regimes tamper or inf- try to distort the internet or at least the information flow on the internet. What we can observe is that in Turkey, in Iran and in Russia, um, people block specific websites. Given that we only have a study from Russia that we conducted, we think that the regime just became made more sophisticated in the way they tampered with the internet or they tried to influence the internet and distort the information flow. So instead of just you know shutting down the internet in an entire region, which is very costly, costly in the means that if you shut down the infrastructure, you're not just disrupting the information flow from the opposition politicians, for example, but you disrupt the infrastructure for local businesses. So it's, you know, it's, it's a costly thing. Now, you can do that more effectively uh, and less costly by just shutting down particular websites. You just shut down the access of all Russians to, let's say, Facebook or um, WhatsApp or things like that. And these things happen. When there's a protest in China, you can suddenly be without your social media, exactly. that sort of yes. thing. I'm still trying to get my head around how you actually do it. You're sitting... Here in Melbourne, um, with your finger on Russia's internet, Turkey's internet, Iran's internet, through a technology which is freely available, you're making available, or what? So we have developed a, a technology that allows us to monitor the internet basically in real time. We scan millions of items on the internet. We have no information about the content. Uh, we only know when an uh, let's say, a router or a computer is online or offline. That's what we know. And we know the in- how, sp- how fast the connection is of this computer. So in a sense, what we measure is basically the quality of the Internet infrastructure as opposed to the content. What we make available is the results of that, are the results of that scan. So in an aggregated form, we aggregate it up at, let's say, a district area. It's not possible that you identify individual computers. And what is the end point of that? Free, undistorted internet access is a human right. That's one thing. It's basically this this provision of information to a general public that our project aims at. The other thing is we can infer human behavior from internet behavior. So we have used these one trillion observations and then looked at how internet behavior, online, offline activity correlates with other behaviors such as sleep patterns or commuting patterns. So one study we did was we used this data to link it to sleep patterns around the world with close to 700 cities and that allowed us to make the first comparable study of sleep patterns around the globe which is not necessarily in the area of economics but 
What we wanted to show is that when you think of sleep, the distinction between when people in Argentina wake up and go to bed, so it's more bedtime and out of bedtime. We don't obviously measure when people fall asleep. There might be differences, of course, across cultures. But um, that's one of the most fundamental things that humans do on a micro scale on a daily basis. And we use that as a showcase to say, hey, look, we, we are able to show that just based on this large amount of internet data. Who are um, the world's best sleepers? I think Argentinians are number one. Australians do pretty well. And who are the world's worst sleepers? Well, Japanese have the shortest amount of sleep, according to our study. Close your eyes for a second. After all, we've just been talking about sleeping. You are somewhere in southern Africa. It's night time. NASA satellites are constantly circling the Earth, taking enormous numbers of pictures. At night, these images show us where the lights are on, a single fact that can tell us a great deal about economic growth and fundamental human behaviour. Paul, you're measuring nighttime luminosity. What are you looking for? The project started with the idea that we've been doing a lot of research on things that influence economic development in poor countries. Now, to do that as an empirical economist, you need data. And data for development, in, especially in Africa, on a, let's say, subnational scale is relatively poor. Uh, we have GDP data, so data about the cross domestic product, which is, let's say, collected by the World Bank or the IMF at a country level. But um, first of all, this data is often not necessarily very reliable. And when you want to zoom into the country, very often we have hardly any information. There's some survey data from a few spots about, you know, people investing a lot of time and effort to collect household surveys. But to make like a, a big comparison across the entire continent, that's hard. There's other data available, and we, we can use other data as proxies, and one of that is uh, to use satellite data on nighttime luminosity. So there are a large number of weather satellites that make recording. They collect a lot of information, and one of those site products, if you want to call it, are pictures of the Earth by night. So it's like a very big photograph with dark and bright pixels, and those pixels have basically a value, and the initial idea was to say, maybe that reflects, you know, human economic behavior. So we said, okay, let's start with that, because um, human economic behavior emits light at night. Government expenditure, for example, when they build infrastructure, a lot of that is lit at night. Investment, when you build a new plant that emits light, and a lot of consumption, driving a car, houses, all of those things emit light. Now, in the first step, we looked whether there's a systematic correlation between this proxy measure for economic activity and actual GDP measures, and we find that. So there's actually a pretty strong correlation. And uh, then we said, okay, we can use that now to go in-depth within countries and compare differences in development, again, within a region over time and between regions. It would seem to be a fairly obvious correlation between availability of electricity, mainly, and luminosity at night? Mm -hmm. Is it harder to measure electricity usage? I suppose this way you don't have to be on the ground to do it. That's true. Especially in Africa, a lot of electricity is produced off the grid. You have diesel generators and things like that. Then in addition, there's, again, simply no data. I mean, it's even hard to 
uh, get reliable data on where the grid is currently at. There's actually a nice little study done on the effect of uh, piracy in Somalia on economic development. So when you think of, of piracy in Somalia, the the people who become pirates are actually most of them are from poor fishing villages on the coast where there's no access to electricity and things like that. Now, when they, you know, capture boat and get ransom payments, you suddenly have an inflow of millions of dollars into that region, which is a huge positive financial shock for those little villages. And this study showed that you can see the effect from outer space. So those cities become brightened up. Piracy lighting up the coast of Somalia, yes. one ship at a time. You Obviously in economics, it's often about the measurement of change. That's one example. What about the politics of change? Does that show up? Yes, so there's anecdotal evidence that political leaders favor different regions within the country. That could be purely from, from an election, re-election perspective, that I say I would like to support my constituents or basically pay them back for their support. It could be simply, as the case in um, Bolivia with Evo Morales showed, he was the first indigenous uh, president elected and people from regions with a higher percentage of indigenous population simply said, we are relatively poor, we have been uh, disadvantaged over the years, now it's our time and uh, we would like to have some redistribution of government funding. Or it could be cases of basically outright corruption, as the case of Mobutu Sesesoku in, uh, at that time, Zaire, and now the Democratic of Republic of Congo showed. So um, he was known to be a kleptocrat. Uh, he basically embezzled aid money, um, funds from or rents from natural resources, and used that money to build palaces and a very nice airport in his hometown of Godabolite, which was previously just a small jungle town, uh, and it became the best, the country's best electricity. He even hired um, Swiss farmers to look after his cattle. So once you can see that change happening, how should that influence the allocation of aid money, the allocation of World Bank activities, whatever? What we showed basically is that as we said, it's often very hard to make a normative statement of whether regional favoritism is good or bad. So in the case of Evo Morales, where you have redistribution going on and people with a preference for a more equal society would say, well, that's good. We, we see that redistribution and regional favoritism is going on and you help the poorer people. And you can also see where the money isn't going. Exactly. But the problem is... What we found in general is that this regional favoritism is not long-lasting. It takes a few years for the region or the, the, the politician to channel money into that region, and then the light picks up. But once the leader is out of power, the region reverts back to its initial state. This investment that we see that leads to higher luminosity during the reign of the political leader does not have a sustainable effect. How much further can that research go? Where we said, okay, first we looked at the birthplace of the, this leader, and now we looked whether ethnicity matters. So you favor, in particular, your ethnicity, which could be around your birthplace, but could be somewhere else in the country. 
And there we found something interesting in a, in a way that people would normally assume that this type of ethnic favoritism is just an African phenomenon. Uh, but our study actually showed that it's a more global phenomenon. So there are um, a lot of ethnic, more, more ethnically diverse countries around there where different ethnicities put their politician into power. Um, and we see these patterns of, of ethnic favoritism. And what we find there, interestingly, is the following. So regional favoritism, this birthplace favoritism, can actually be mitigated with good political institutions. So if you have checks and balances in place, we see hardly any of the regional favoritism, or at least favoritism that we can observe from outer space. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, Whereby with uh, ethnic favoritism, what we find is actually that ethnic favoritism is stronger in more democratic countries. So there, if you think that you know democracy is a, is a tool for very good political institutions, uh, it seems that the re-election concerns that come with a democratic regime just... Uh, encourage ethnic favoritism. It's in a sense, you know, at the end you want or have to pay back the support. And what sort of response do you get from traditional economists who just look at their old GDP numbers? Are they excited by it or a bit threatened? I think initially there was um, uh, some people, of course, were suspicious. I mean, that's good. You are, as a scientist, you have to be suspicious. You should not treat it as a substitute for GDP data, but just as a complement. At the end of the day, GDP data is also just a proxy for welfare, human economic activity. And we add another imperfect proxy to that to just, you know, get a more detailed picture of what's going on in society. Is it fun to find these new areas? Of sense course. of discovery? Of course. It's the... If you don't get utility out of the process, I mean, that's what it should be about in terms of research. This big picture data of yours, both luminosity and internet speeds, obviously you must see immediate reaction when there's a disaster, uh, when there's a cyclone, when there's a bushfire. What does that tell you? What's the point of that? When you have a disaster, for especially first responders, is that you do not necessarily know how big the extent of the disaster is. So with a hurricane, we know where the hurricane goes. We know the exact path, and we know it has hit this area. But we don't know the, how big the destruction was. We can monitor the Internet before the hurricane arrives. And then once the hurricane has hit the area, we see whether you know the Internet slowed down or whether there's no more Internet available. And that allows us then to map basically the destructive extent of the hurricane. So it could be that an area is hit, but maybe the hurricane, the power of the hurricane has already died down and has not, you know, sufficient destructive power to at least destroy assets to a certain extent. Um, and in our case, we can basically provide real-time visualization of uh, the destructive path of the hurricane. Where the greatest need is to send Exactly, relief. yes. We monitor the internet during Hurricane Irma. We, we are doing pretty good in measuring the, the physical strength of the disaster and the direction. And, you know, we can do that with satellite data or with weather stations on the ground. But to measure the human extent of the disaster, that's pretty hard. Uh, you have to send people in. And so I think we can just provide 
more timely information. Of course, it's not very precise, but we can give people at least immediately a first glimpse of the idea how big the extent is and which areas were affected. What's the next area of big picture, big data that's interesting you? So one thing is in terms of the satellite data, so far we have relied on nighttime light data, and that requires a certain level of development to be detected. And especially in Africa, that area with the, the biggest lack of data, there are still a lot of areas which are you know, populated and there's economic activity, but the nighttime emissions are not high enough to be picked up by satellites. So what we are currently working on is using the daytime images, similar to what you see on Google Maps. It's just an image. If you look at that, you can identify, yeah, that's a road, that's a house, and that's a fully ground. But um, you need to do that in the case of Africa for over 30 million square kilometers, this detection. So you need to automize this detection. There again, big data methods come in. So we have a very big data set. It's multiple terabyte of picture information. And then we overlap it with machine learning tools to detect items. Um, and the idea then is to say, yeah, maybe we can come up with an index that's again correlates very well with official figures of wealth, consumption, or economic development. So if there's change in the image, if something gets built, exactly. pop up. Yes, that's the idea. Professor Paul Rashke, thanks for talking to us on Thought Capital. Thank you. You've been listening to Thought Capital from Monash Business School. You can find out more at monash.edu forward slash impact. If you enjoyed Thought Capital, also listen to Just Cases. Just Cases is the show about the biggest legal cases you've never heard of. Every day, law courts make decisions that change the lives of those present in the room. Some decisions change society itself. You can find Just Cases on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thought Capital is produced by Tina Zanu. Editing and post-production by Nadia Hume. Technical support by Gareth Popplestone. Executive producer is Helen Westerman.